it is still incredibly lonely. The downside is that none of your friendship group really get it. So when you're not in the mood on a Friday afternoon, got a real problem that's keeping you up at night, you can't go and just have a normal chat with people around. Yeah, I've got to pay this £30,000 VAT bill tomorrow um, and I can't pay it. <laughs> Success in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. In today's episode, I'm joined by ex-professional rugby player and founder of The Bunch, Elliot Herod-Taylor. Like all good rugby players, Elliot's time at university will have been predominantly spent on socialising and propping up the bar. I wonder if that's why Elliot founded the student-focused business, The Bunch. The Bunch, founded in 2017, helps students and letting agents compile their multiple bills in an easy-to-manage one-off payment. If only this existed whilst I was at university. Elliot, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. How are you doing? I'm very well, sir. Very well. So before I get into actually what Bunch does, I'm fascinated by your kind of pre-Bunch experience, I suppose. And you were you were at university, you've done a million and one different things, but you started off back in the day with a rugby scholarship at Marlborough College, and you later went on to study at Leeds University doing politics, political science, and, and, uh, and government. But you were also, at the time, a professional rugby player. It's not a sort of typical journey into entrepreneurship. No, I know. Well, I started playing rugby when I was about six years old, um, found out I was fairly good at it, and then sort of <laughs> used that as a, um, a tool to sort of get me get me places, really. So I was at state school in uh, Marlborough at the time, and then was able to get sort of a 100% scholarship to Marlborough College, which um, is a quite a prestigious private school, and that was a completely different sort of eye-opener for me. And um, completely different environment. And then, yeah, I, in my last year, I was offered a pro contract at Bath. And um, yeah, since I was a, a young boy, I'd wanted to pursue that rugby career. And uh, funny enough, after getting it and uh, doing it for about six months, I uh, had it taken away from me pretty quickly. Um, I got, no one ever believes this story, but <laughs> I, um, I got bitten by a, a false widow spider in <laughs> London. In London? Um, place? I thought they were in Australia. <laughs> No, so oh, that's false, Black Widows, isn't it? Yeah, False Widow was just a craze in about 2014, where there was a big, <laughs> some reason, I think it was nice and hot over here, and they managed to managed to grow. But um, yeah, I got sepsis from it um, and had to spend, I don't know, four weeks in uh, in Swindon Hospital, and and then had to have a series of operations. And I sort of took the opportunity at that point, going, oh, I don't know if I can be bothered to. Wait around for a year, and uh, from a hospital bed, applied for 
uh, clearing and uh, Leeds were one of the few people that took me on. <laughs> <laughs> Good, but I mean, at university, you weren't just studying, you know, properly, properly heavy subjects. You were also in a huge amount of societies from politics to rugby to innovation. And, you know, how the hell did you find the time to not only study science and government and political sort of studies, but also join these societies and, and continue to kind of hit the grades you needed to hit? I think for me, because I hadn't ever planned on actually being at Leeds and studying, so um, it's, a, it's a bit cheeky, but I um, I got in on a, a, a politics degree that was, uh, I think it was three Bs to get in. And then uh, as soon as I got, I got there, I went to the admissions and managed to <laughs> wangle my way onto a much higher, higher course. <laughs> Were um, they des- desperate to get people on? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, it must have been a, a bad year for A-levels that year. Um, <laughs> but um, for me, I sort of got to university. And as you can imagine, I've come from quite a strict regime of... Yeah, yeah pro sport and i was then opened up uh, with lots of free time and these opportunities and i thought actually i'm just going to try and do everything um i must say the first year was uh almost let my hair down and mm-hmm. go and enjoy myself um and then it wasn't really until i moved into out of halls into my second year that i started to sort of um take a lot of interest in things like the business and mm-hmm. um the extracurricular stuff because it's interesting that you started a business uh, at university because not only that, you also in, what was it, 2017 decided to go to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Boot Camp. Now, that is uh, quite a prestigious boot camp. I mean, you were one of only a few people, uh, I think it was 100 people, right, in terms of internationally to get onto that. Now, how did you <laughs> how did you even come about going to that course? Um, so one of the uh, business advisors at the, at the at Leeds um, previously had knew someone that had gone on it and they recommended it and uh, I just yeah I went through the applications and yeah I was pretty lucky to get to get on that um, and but it was a great opportunity I got I've actually been back a couple of times now so I've had two times in Brisbane one time in Madrid one time in Taiwan with just loads of entrepreneurs all over the world it's been yeah it's been pretty pretty good experience so is that you would you put that down to kind of molding you in terms of an entrepreneur and what you know now has been learned from those courses or has there been an element of discipline and learning from the sports career albeit six months that actually you've 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 taken on and implemented in your now new career um i think a lot of it if i'm honest comes from my upbringing um my parents uh run a business together for the last sort of 30 years and I've been working around that or been around that since quite a young age about 10 and so I've always um had had a desire to eventually run my own business I think when the rugby was not really an option anymore Mm -hmm. uh that was when I started looking looking at opportunities so what do your parents do business-wise so my dad is basically um uh, inventor, he designs and uh, creates recording and mastering equipment for studios. Oh, brilliant! Um, so are we using any of the stuff today in our studio? What's he? What does he build? <laughs> I don't know. He'll probably uh, probably come back to me when this is published and uh, ask what mastering equipment you were using. <laughs> yes, fine. Well, and, and why did he? And how did he get into that? And what does your mum do within that world? Or does she do something completely different? So my mum, my parents sort of uh, came, decided to quit their jobs on the honeymoon, set up the company Crookwood, which is what they still work for today. And um, yeah, my dad invents all the stuff and produces it. And my mum helps with all the sort of sales and the marketing side as well. Okay, so it's truly entrepreneurial. And in terms of, have you got any siblings? Yeah, so I'm, I'm the oldest and I've got a, a younger brother and a younger sister. What do they do? 
So my brother, um, he's, he's actually just got a hundred percent scholarship to Marlborough College for rugby as well. <laughs> um, and my sister is um, just doing a master's in Liverpool. Okay, so it's quite a quite a talented and quite a structured family in that sense. And you know, you you started another business before you started um, the bunch at university called um, Up Four Events, and you were a co-founder of that. Now that was founded in in, in twenty fifteen. It seemed to have ended, or at least you ended it in twenty eighteen, if I'm correct. And uh, what was the kind of reason and the purpose behind starting that business? <laughs> Uh, anyone who knows me knows that I'm an avid fan of drum and bass music. <laughs> and um, when I went to Leeds, it was the um, majority of the events there were sort of house and disco. Um, and we, me and a couple of my best friends um, at uni saw an opportunity to um, try and introduce uh, a drum and bass night into Leeds. And um, yeah, it was probably some of the most fun I've ever had, to be honest. What was the, um, what was the kind of purpose behind it? Was it just to have a giggle? Was it actually to make it commercially viable? or was it- Yeah, it was. It ended up just, the people I was doing it with, we'd always like to have thrown parties when we were younger. Um, and uh, it was an opportunity for us to throw a party. And then um, we started to actually gain some decent traction and it ended up with us, yeah, we were hiring some of the biggest clubs in Leeds and managed to do a couple of events in some other cities as well. So it, and then it turned out as a, a nice moneymaker for mm. us while we were studying. Yeah, just to fund the beer um, coffers, really. Uh, so how, and why did you end it then? Was it just simply when you graduated, you thought this is this is me done now, and, and you'll transition into into the bunch? Yeah, so I, I set it up. Um, uh, I set it up with uh, two guys who um, were the year above me at Leeds, and they'd graduated. Um, and I ended up doing four years rather than three. So um, we basically got to a stage where they were no longer in Leeds. I was running the bunch at the time, and we sort of just took the opportunity to go. Um, it's been a, a real laugh while while we've been doing it, but maybe let's just try and get a bit of money out of it, and I could put it into things like the bunch, and they could uh, have some more beer money in London. Yeah. So you sold it, did you, or did you just take yeah, out we, what was in the we bank? we sold it. Oh, really? How much did you sell it for? Uh, we sold it for five thousand pounds. Okay, so you sold it for, and that was the seed cap that you put into the bunch, was it? Uh, that was part of it, yeah. Um, I also um, took a series of sort of uh, personal loans from the yes. government, um, which, and I also got some grant funding from Leeds Uni. So. And in terms of actually how you came up with the idea for the bunch, what was the kind of concept and that eureka moment then? So it was when I first moved out of halls in first year and I moved in with 10 people uh, into a into a, a grim house in Leeds. Um, the, it was, I, was, I was that unlucky one that was put in charge of sorting all the bills out. Uh, I don't know how I ended up with it, but I did. And it, it just turned out to be an absolute nightmare. So we... I was setting up contracts with energy providers, broadband providers, water, and it was all in my name. So I was the one that was liable for it. And then I was then chasing housemates for money. They'd all gone out on the weekend and a, a bill would come through on a Monday morning and they'd have no money to pay it. And people started leaving the house. I went, this is an absolute nightmare. Um, and it was at that point I went, I think there's a, there's a business here. Um, and then I spent six months of researching it and, so there's always a couple of people that were in that space. I thought, actually, I could do a better job than this. And mm-hmm. that was it. We were off. 
<laughs> I remember at university when I was in a student, or was it student um, halls, not halls, sorry, the student accommodation, we used to have one of those little purple sticks that you had to put in the outside unit and go down <laughs> to the garage and put five yeah, pounds a week the, or whatever it was on there. The prepayment meters. God, they were awful. I'm assuming, do they even exist yeah. anymore? They actually do. Do they? Um, yeah, we 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 struggle with them. We get them taken out and put a normal one in. But it's just um, so much admin, and you go this rain, yeah, and you don't want to do it, and it won't work, and you can't watch the TV, and you know, you just think, Christ, my, this is awful. But anyway, I mean, yeah. your your problem solves that. I like it. So you install those for them. You install the actual automatic, the decent. Yeah, everyone meters. gets a smart meter who works with us, so they don't even have to send meter reads anymore, and they can. Genius. One of the biggest USPs of our product is that you never speak to any of the suppliers. Right. So you manage all your bills on our portal and you can see your live usage, etc. Okay. And before we get into the bunch, I'm just going to sort of summarize based on, you know, how much, just to put it in perspective, you actually did between the times of, uh, you know, university and then, <laughs> and then graduating. Because how old were you when you graduated? 24? Uh, no, it was 23. 23, fine. So 2014, 2018, university leads. 2014, professional rugby player for Bath. 2014, 2018, societies including politics, rugby, and innovation. 2015, 2018, co-founder of Up4 Events. 2017, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. 2017, founder of The Bunch. And you graduated when you were 23. I mean, that's somebody's entire career there that you've done in the space of a few years. And you mentioned that when you graduated, you had The Bunch, which is obviously the business that you're running so successfully now. The grants that you got from university, how much did they make in terms of a difference to you founding that business? Yeah, I think it was um, it was awesome. So we got about £10,000 from them. Um, but I think the the main... Uh, advantage of of the grant funding was actually also the the business advice that came with it, the mentorship. Um, they provided us office spaces as well, so we had somewhere to actually bring people to work. But yeah, they were it was really instrumental, and I think we were quite lucky in the fact that we got traction fairly early on, um, and then and that sort of initial capital was enough to get us to start bringing in our own revenue. Um, obviously, some other businesses require a lot more money. Um, dependent on what they're offering. So I think we were, we were lucky in that, that that was just the right amount. So in terms of that, you took 10,000 from Leeds, you took 5,000 potential, or give or take, from the sale of Up4. Um, what other seed capital funds did you did you have? Because it must have been a fairly labour-intensive business startup because you did it all on a spreadsheet and all very manually. There was no automation at that time. Yeah. Um, I took a £25,000 personal loan from a government startup um, company called Startup Loans. Um, and then, so I took that when I was in my, um, third year at university. Um, and then in my fourth year, I refinanced that loan and took an extra 20,000. So you were pretty well in debt to, to most people, it seems, both government and I suppose universities with student <laughs> loans, X, Y, and Z. That's a massive amount of, I suppose, risk to take whilst at university. Most people come out with 30, 40, 50 grand's worth of debt anyway. You were coming out with nearly 100k. Yeah, I'm still paying that bloody <laughs> loan off at the moment. Which one, the student university one or the actual no, business the, one? The, the business one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's how you look at the risk though, isn't it? Because um, I've always felt comfortable that if it all went completely tits up, I can always still move home and I've got a loving family that I can go back to. I don't have a, any kids or a mortgage or anything. So I think I would argue that the best time to do it is at this age when you, you actually don't have that much responsibility. I think when you start going 
uh, when you leave university, you go get a job, you then get accustomed to a certain type of wage, you then want to settle down, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it gets harder and harder to do. So I think it's probably the best time to do it. No, I'd agree. I did the similar thing in terms of at university, you kind of go, well, what have I kind of got to lose apart from maybe a couple of nights out? And, and that's that's essentially it. But you know, going back to that support that you alluded to in terms of family being there, if indeed it, it does go Pete Tong, I mean, you also had the co-founder when you started your first business. Do you think that was fundamental in terms of having that support net around you? Now you're obviously on your own in terms of you are just the founder, the CEO of Bunch. But back in the day, was that fundamental? Yeah, look, uh, Stewie, he's still with us today. He's still providing um, a lot of support for me personally. Um, and I think it's... It, I, when I first started, I had a, I think it was a, a year on my own before I sort of brought anyone else in, and it is still incredibly lonely. Um, and I think what the the downside I've just come on obviously over the upside of running a business young is the downside is that none of your friendship group really get it. Um, so when you're trying, when you're um, not in the mood on a Friday afternoon because you've had a, a, a really hard week or you've got a real problem that's keeping you up at night, you can't go and just have a normal chat with people around, mm. yeah, I've got to pay this £30,000 VAT bill tomorrow um, and I can't pay it. <laughs> um, and so I think having someone around you who's in the business and you can bounce the ideas off or call at one in the morning is, is really important. Uh, but I, I think the other thing that, in hindsight that we did well early on is that we weren't naive to the fact that we didn't know it all. We were really young and so we built a really extensive board of advisors um, and also our own board, brought a chairman in on execs. And I think that has, again, acted like another sort of co- co-founder-ish mm-hmm. um, They can kind of hold you to account, can not they? they can exactly, yeah. Person to question. So talk to me about your board and your NED structure. I mean, how many have you got sitting on that and how have you structured it? Did you give away equity? Did you just pay them by the day? What's the, the fact the Yeah, so we've, we've got four on the board. It's myself, Stewie. Uh, we've got... We brought in a chairman about two years ago, um, uh, David Murray Huntley, who was a non-exec um, before a, for a year before that. He's been sort of instrumental in helping us, um, like skip issues that um, he's been through a million times, and um, he also provides some some really good accountability to us and the team, and also that sort of company structure. I think as you scale the business, you need a good governing system um, and reporting structure. And he's really implemented that from a really early stage when actually it's almost like uh, what a VC expects before we even had VC. So, And how did you find him then? Um, I found him through a network of mine. Um, he was working with some other companies um, that I knew and um, I ended up having a conversation with him and we just sort of hit it off very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he liked what we were doing and mm-hmm. um, he saw that there were a few things that we were doing that were probably going to um, bite us in the bum. <laughs> <laughs> and he was very quick, to, um, to be fair to him, to jump on that and actually just add value from the beginning. And when we built that trust up, it was then um, something that we um, just continued with really. In terms of automating your business, when you started, it was really linear. It was on spreadsheets. It was just with, you know, not algorithms per se, but formulas. And, you know, how did you take it from essentially Excel to, I'm assuming, a bespoke flat platform now that sort of runs in the background? 
Yeah, well, my chairman laughs because he, he reckons we made the most money ever off Access 94 database. <laughs> How much um, did you make off it? <laughs> I, think we, I think when we left that, we were doing about one and a half million in revenue. It must be quite labour intensive though, Elliot. Yeah, it was. It was. Like, we, like, we spent the first three years doing a lot of things manually. Mm-hmm. But, and that was when, because we, we were bootstrapping, so we didn't raise any capital other than what we spoke about earlier mm. and everything was about the top line it was about proving that the customers would wanted it and were actually paying us so that we could stay afloat it wasn't really until we'd gone okay we want to raise investment and uh, everywhere we went we went well we are making money we, we've done a, a fairly good job here but everyone's concern was well it, it's not scalable you can't do this you can't do that and that's really the first time that we had to really put some thought into yeah. how we can automate it. And when we raised our first investment round, pretty much all of that investment went mm-hmm. to building the systems. And how much did you raise on that, on that series A? Uh, so it was just a seed round actually. Oh, right. We did okay. um, 400,000. Okay, 400,000. And what did you give, how much equity for that then? So we gave away about 20% for that. Okay. Oh, fine. Okay. And I'm assuming since then you've, you've gone through other funds or are you still very much just using that seed? So we raised another sort of seed round uh, in Christmas 20, um, right. and that was 900,000. Um, and we're currently gearing up at the moment for a Series A. So how much equity did you give away on that then? Because so many entrepreneurs try and keep hold of all of the equity, and it sometimes is a bit of a mistake. And on the first fund, you've liquidated 20%. What was the second fund? Second was about another 20%. Yeah, so you got 40% of the business gone. I mean... Is it going to leave room for you to be a majority if everyone has, you know, uh, that much equity? I, I look at the investment differently. I, I look at it as a case of these people are helping you get to the, the next level and actually their money is adding value to that end goal. I think if you're running a lifestyle business, then you want to hold on to as much equity as possible and just take out all the, all the dividends. But we're trying to run a performance business and our big um, payout is going to be the exit. If you look at, like, people get caught up on dilution but if your share price is rising then you're still benefiting well it's all relative right and it's rather than yeah. have a small piece of a, of a bigger pie than an entire pie with you know hardly any cash in it um and i totally get that but it's so many and that's why i asked the question because so many people do assuming correctly and you know it's subject to what industry you're in you look at james dyson who does have the entirety yeah. of, of of dyson but in terms of i suppose where you guys are going and what that scale up looks like are you going to be based on the fact that you've got someone that's already ipo'd on your board are you looking for a, a sort of publicly listed company eventually i don't know i think for us we're probably going to look at a trade sale um i think i think that's probably the goal i think if we can get if the scale anyone iping out at the, at the moment there's sort of a gold rush of it, isn't it mm-hmm. everyone seems to be doing it exactly so um i think it comes down to timing i think it's you've got to look that five-year plan but i think for us it's about building the value over the next three years to then be at a position that we could trade sell and if it, at that point we go actually if we give it another three years i think we'd be at a point to ipo and i think it's going to be those will be where we're making those key decisions but for us i think we're probably most likely going to be a trade sell Our sponsors, Coronation Wealth Management, provide a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. 
Here's what an entrepreneur and the founder of a health and fitness app says about working with Coronation Wealth. The team at Coronation have had no end in helping me formulate my business, understand the risks and things to think about. They're now looking after my family and their financial objectives. Coronation Wealth Management LLP is an appointed representative of and represents only St. James's Place Wealth Management PLC, which is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority for the purpose of advising solely on the group's wealth management products and services. More details of which are set out on the group's website www.sjp.co.uk forward slash products. When you first started, you obviously were well, working with Ovo Energy, Virgin Media, those kind of brands you were putting into a pile and you were just sort of simplifying bills for students. Now, how did you go about procuring and bringing those brands on when you yourself were just greatest of respect to nobody at university like we all were? <laughs> um, so it's really difficult. Um, and I think the supply, the hard one of the harder parts of the business that we run is actually that supply side. Mm. So we are a middleman, so we're, we're linking two sets of customers together via the market. But I think the the biggest thing that you can do is um, keep on them. It's like yeah. sales. <laughs> it's If you're doing B2B sales, you, you need to consistently keep showing them that it's getting better yes. and, and that you're getting better and you're adding more value and that they can be part of that value. And I think that's what we started to do. We, mm. we started off actually with quite small providers. So um, we started off with... Um, and like challenger energy companies that only had 10,000 houses. Mm -hmm. And then we've slowly built our way up and uh, the respect of the larger ones. And what about the eco ones? You know, what about the eco-friendly energy providers? Are you interested in specializing in, in that avenue? Or is it very much just you'll take any energy provider based on the fact that, you know, people use different suppliers? We made a commitment, I think it was January 19, that we will only uh, supply... Um, 100% renewable energy. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at any of our tariffs, they're all 100% renewable. Um, and even though they, it's cost costs us more, and in some respects can outprice us a little mm -hmm. bit with some of the other guys, um, it's something that our whole team felt very strongly about. And I think we are quite a young team, and it's mm -hmm. it's um, an important value for a lot of us growing up. And I think. It's just something we're going to have to stick with. A hundred percent. It's certainly where the world's going. And speaking about your team, you do you do talk about your team an incredible amount online. And you won last year, twenty twenty, the Great British Entrepreneur Award, Startup uh, Entrepreneur of the Year. And you thanked the fact that it was down to your team. Now, as a leader of of, of bunch, you know, and the front man, what does good leadership look like? And how important are your team at making you a success? Um, I think leadership is is absolutely key. I think. You need to um, inspire your team um, to get to get the most out of them because ultimately, I think it's. I learned a couple of years ago that mm. you can't do everything, <laughs> um, and you need to you need others around you to yeah. be able to to grow the business. And if we want to hit the number that we want to hit on exit, then it's um, I'm going to have very little to do with the day to day, um, <laughs> and it's it's really important. I think. Uh, the hardest job I have is is the team mm -hmm. and and inspiring them, building the right uh, groups together. How we mould people, who mm -hmm. we bring in, how do they work? And it's it's a science in itself. Hundred percent. Um, trying to do that and something that I've been focusing really hard on for the last year is about how can I actually improve my leadership skills. How mm -hmm. can you 
what what systems can you put in place to try and um decharge situations before they happen or yeah. build a culture where people are happy to sort of step up and challenge people as well yeah yeah and, and what does so what does the structure currently of the business look like so uh we've got obviously the board uh, myself we we now have a management team with a head of department for sales operations customer success marketing mm-hmm. and tech okay. and then underneath them on average they've got about uh two to three people each so what's the staffing count uh just over 20 okay fine so it's still got that startup culture but you're trying to set it up for a larger scalable business i suppose you're almost forecasting yeah exactly we there's still the occasion where we're all sort of helping with other people's jobs and um if there's a, an issue we'll, we'll jump on and help but mm-hmm. yeah it's we've only recently put in those structural changes so mm-hmm. we are still very much at the sort of learning phase and and getting the reporting right now is, is mm-hmm. the main the main concern I think it's a really, really good idea. And in terms of actually running your diary, your life, your schedule, obviously you were quite busy at university, so you've kind of got that down to a T. But as you grow and as you try and focus on that growth and that sort of strategic objective, what does a day-to-day look like for Elliot? Um, my, my my Google calendar is like an art. It change, it's an evolving thing that I, I, tr- I read a new book and I've changed it a million times. Um, but for me, it's about... Um, having set structured time in the day to do certain tasks. So if I have something I need to do, I've always block it out. I have, um, I try not to have any meetings uh, in the mornings. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And what's the reason uh, for that? It's just simply so you can focus on the administrative side. I get really tired between about three and six. Right. Um, and I'm assuming PM. And PM, yeah. <laughs> AM. Um, and so... I tend to have my meetings during that period when I don't have to um, like be creative or like really um, mm-hmm. get pen to paper, etc. It's more just conversational. So those are when I try and have my meetings. So I normally I have um, basically blocked out times mm-hmm. that people just book up. Okay. Um, but my morning routine, um, I like to get up about six to half six. Okay. Um, do some work and then I normally start, uh, sorry, do a workout and then normally start work about eight. Okay. So, I mean, Jeff Bezos always says that he does his high, Q, high IQ meetings in the morning, low IQ meetings in the afternoon, but arguably it seems that a lot of people tend to kick the day off with exercise. Do you think that just helps you focus? Can you get through the week if you don't do that? Is it a routine that you have yeah, to Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's awesome. I think, uh, I, something of <laughs> going from doing it a lot when I was younger I must mm. say at university I didn't do any <laughs> so um, it's only in the last sort of 18 months that I've actually really taken that religiously and I'm trying to do something every day now mm-hmm. um and yeah it's an absolute game changer for um dealing with stress and um just being on point for the day because I think Richard Branson once said to, to be a big business you do think like a big business regardless of, of, of size essentially yeah. which seemingly is is what you're doing but in terms of and it's a smart move to, to patch in any ideas in the board because they have gone through the pains that essentially so many entrepreneurs and startups do when they're founding a business now what kind of pains have you gone through that you would now do differently or advise somebody not to do oh <laughs> there's a, a quite a big one that's happened to me recently but um which i would i i we had a poor onboarding process right um in one of my departments and we hired um completely the wrong person 
um, and it ended up costing the business a lot of money. Is that because there was a payout, a golden handshake, or just simply because they made massive mistakes? Long story short, and I, I don't know if it's actually going to add any value to your listening base, but it's quite a good story. Um, <laughs> well, then there's is, value add. <laughs> yeah, is um, so we hired someone who, long story short, faked their own father's f- funeral. You joking? Um, and I, uh, I ended up paying for this funeral uh, because I the guy was struggling, and um, I then. Uh, got sent a message and went on his Facebook and he was with his dad uh, fishing. <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> ha- as in, this guy was a person you'd met, you'd hired, he literally oh, was yeah, the right thing him. you felt you were doing yeah. the right thing. And yeah, yeah, we... <laughs> Christ. Yeah, and um, uh, then uh, found out that there were, he had a gambling problem, so... That well, was evidently, uh, with his career yeah, that was... as well as his income. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So that was a that was a, a nice lesson I'd learned. So um, how did you get rid uh, of him then? What was the plan? Gross misconduct. Yeah, gross misconduct. But it was also quite um, an eye opener about how you get rid of someone, if, even if they've come in and admitted that that whole scenario. And mm-hmm. I've then still got to pay my lawyers to mm-hmm. do disciplinaries and investigations. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so I think the onboarding process is key, making sure that you're getting you're testing people. I know that's a a hard thing to to iron out but in in terms of we've hired people in the past that shouldn't be in those roles and um ultimately it costs money to train people and mm-hmm. and the people are so key when you're so small a hundred percent and one person can really you know be yeah a, and if an they're not the right cultural fit as well even if they're adding value then sometimes you need to make that hard decision and let them go and, and what does uh, your culture feel and look like then because are you guys all in the office at the moment or are you working from home and you know how has the pandemic culturally affected you because it might not have affected you necessarily financially because of the students but culturally there must be a, a slight change yeah so um we we're all in the office yeah. as of basically first of march um which has been really nice and has actually helped build the culture but mm-hmm. before that probably from uh last march we were all working from home mm-hmm. um it was really difficult we were onboarding people remotely which i absolutely hated yeah it's horrible um, you just don't know what they're like no and uh we then had a, a real interesting mix within within the staff of some that uh a lot of them we were fairly young all they wanted to do was just get into the office mm-hmm. um and so we actually ended up having this sort of hybrid of half the staff in the office half working from home and that actually caused more issues yeah. than um than we n- first anticipated so yeah the culture has really been worked on since march because mm-hmm. we've we've grown the team about we've added an extra sort of seven eight people since mm-hmm. christmas um and we've tried to bring everyone together in the office and i think the only the biggest lessons that we learned were you've really got to keep an extra eye on not as a a boss thinking you're not doing the work but actually on on the staff and how they're getting on at home we we yeah. had a lot of people that um once digging into it, they were actually didn't like their home life very much and they mm-hmm. had issues at home and actually you're then, they're getting to, out of the office was a release for them. Yeah. Um, and these are all the sort of things that you just don't anticipate when you are in the office every day. No. And so you've got to be a bit more sympathetic and um, ask a few more deeper questions to the staff. And are you going back to flexi or are you changing the way people work? Are you, how, how has the pandemic changed you? 
if you're my honest answer, I would like I'd like everyone in the office. Yeah. Yeah. Um is there a reason for I, that? Apart from the fact that actually I it's think, just I think easier. it's the fact that you you build a, a a relationship with someone that you just cannot do over the over electronically. And I think that consistent it's not it's not even the fact that you're gonna get the work done, it's that it's that little coffee that you have with that person in a completely different department. It's the conversations that you hear around the office. And as much as I think one of the only exceptions to that, which we've started to implement is if you're doing project work, which is non-collaborative and you just need, you know, those tasks when you just need to sit down and not yeah. speak to anyone for a day yeah. just yeah. so you can finish it. We've, <laughs> we've said world, of those yeah. guys, just, yeah, go, go home and just wake up and just and do that. Yeah, 100%. And, and looking back, I suppose, over the last, let's just say, five years or so, the opportunities that you've been given from a scholarship at, at you know, university or school, frankly, uh, through to the Institute of Technology, you know, it's an interesting route to get to where you wanted to get to. Was it the route that you set out on or was it all quite lucky? I think it was lucky, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Do you make your own luck or do you just, you know, mince through life and hope for the best? I love the concept of luck. <laughs> you, I I absolutely love it. There's a there's a great book on it. Um, uh, I think you you make your own luck by mm. the way that you look at the world. Um, I think a, a lot of say yes to a lot of things and keep your eyes open, and there's always opportunities everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one thing that we did well early on is we said we said yes I, I remember meeting my first employee because his um uh his brother he has a family business that's an estate agency mm-hmm. um and i knew his brother at school and i just randomly asked him if i could get some work experience mm-hmm. and then i went on the work experience and then i got really well with them and then they invited me on holiday with them <laughs> and then i went on holiday i met i met noah and then I had the conversation with Noah and then three weeks later he was coming and work for me and he worked for me for three years and was an unbelievable asset. And I think that was a really lucky experience, but it was because we, we just said yes to everything. Yeah, and, and a lot of people, Branson included, etc., we've alluded to him a lot this podcast, but, you know, say yes, work it out later seems to be the general, I suppose, MO of most entrepreneurs. It's yes, you can go out with a plan, but actually just say yes and I'm sure better things will happen than saying no to everything. Yeah, I think it's Rio Ferdinand that says, say yes to everything on the way up. And then when you get to the top, start saying no. <laughs> I quite like, I haven't heard that one. I do yeah. quite like that. And in terms of how you guys go out and market yourself and shout about yourself and make, make, make noise about the brand. Now, looking at your sector, looking at your market, student orientated, it's a niche. And once you're in there, surely you're in there and you don't have to do a vast amount more publicizing or marketing because there is only a finite amount of students, right? Arguably, you mentioned earlier on that you're going into the professional world. So how are things going to change for you guys over the next six, 12 months as you start to market to students and, I suppose, uh, yuppies, business professionals? Yeah, I think my the, the biggest vision that we've got is that we can capture someone at 18 and look after them until they buy their first home. And we want to be able to transition that person through. People at my age are going to be renting way into their 30s. And we want to be able to transition people through the different houses and, and they just have one app that moves with them wherever they go. So that's the first angle is how can we retain the students that we've currently got. The second angle to attract new um, young professionals is uh, going to be trying to focus more heavily on our B2B arm and specifically B2B2C. 
And by adding value to the letting agency and that change of tenancy process, we get the opportunity to then sell our services to the, the professionals moving in. Um, that <laughs> <laughs> obviously not a very good strategy no um, <laughs> no siri's not on board alas uh, but in, in terms <laughs> in terms of how much driving force you actually have on strategic direction do you rely on your management to come up with that 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 vision that trajectory i suppose or do you have the full and final say how much autonomy do you give to your uh to your teams i think uh where where i'm personally good at is sales and the product Mm -hmm. innovation side so i like to have a a much larger say in um what we're building how it interlinks Mm -hmm. and what innovation uh is is key for us Mm -hmm. and from a sales perspective i i like going out and trying to get deals but everything else i like to uh let others have go at so um perfect example is i'm not going to tell the cto what the best code is to use um because i haven't got any interest in that at all um or i'm not gonna tell the customer support guys what's the best phone system to use yeah i think ultimately you i think entrepreneurs are naturally a bit of control freaks Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and because it's their baby they care they also they they also know everything they should well they should know everything so when someone else is coming with an opinion you've got to be able to and this is something that i feel like i've got better at but not 100 percent. that is you've you've got to be able to sort of de-risk the things that you pass out mm-hmm. so when when we brought the management team in um it was a case of i'm going to give you this 80 percent that you've got full autonomy over mm-hmm. but this 20 percent, which is really important i'd like to have a say in as well mm-hmm. and i think it's it's about de-risking the things that um de-risking the task and making mm-hmm. sure that you're not delegating the most important part of the business because i think you should have a say in that and interestingly you, you mentioned that obviously you need to know everything and granted you do but arguably a lot of risk is especially on a single founder like yourself is on your head you've got all these loans that you're starting or having to repay back i don't know what the personal guarantees are if any on those now there's a huge amount of sacrifice that when you start a business you have to make right people often think that as soon as you start a business you're the richest person in the room fact of the matter is you're probably the poorest for the foreseeable if not for the entirety right what type of sacrifices have you had to make above and beyond those loans i think there's a there's a mental sacrifice to running a business um the stress that it comes with it and i think it's something that i've had to really work on um over the last 18 months is how you manage that and and um I've I've put a lot of time into it, and I've, mm-hmm. I feel like before you when you you go really high with all the highs and you go really low with all the lows, and the goal I'm aiming you aiming for is to just be quite mellow as whether it's high or low, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that a lot of people don't see. Um, like you said, it's the you just see the tip of the iceberg, but you don't see all the blood, sweat, and tears that come underneath that. I think um, socially as well, there's a it, it's quite a sacrifice in, in some respects because you it goes back to that point. So it's sometimes really hard to switch off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's when you're out and around, it, you can also be quite hard to enjoy yourself at points. Yeah. Um, and that can affect relationships. I think um, it's really difficult for other halves. If you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, mm-hmm. um, because 
going back to that point, you don't turn off. Mm-hmm. Um, and being being present is something I'm consistently told off for not being. <laughs> so you've managed to retain the relationship, though. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've got a, an unbelievably um, understanding girlfriend, um, but it, I know it's not easy. Yeah. Um, and so I'm gonna try and make up for it in other ways and um, and put and put put her, put her forward sometimes. So I've started. I did actually put forward the idea, which she didn't enjoy, which I actually thought was quite sexy in some ways, <laughs> of um, booking in time into my Google Calendar for her. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because my girlfriend, my girlfriend literally Elliot yesterday said, can you share your calendar with me because it will make life easy? And I went, do you know, three years I've been married and I've never done that. And it's, you know, world of opportunity has just opened up specifically for her. There's a lot of issues about to open up for me because there will be absolutely no time for work anymore. So <laughs> I think it's a good I idea. really romantic. Yeah, I do. Book you in one till three like every Saturday. <laughs> and that's your time. But um, she she didn't think the spontaneity was uh, was that was that. Well, I mean, impressive. you could just cancel last minute, and then it's quite spontaneous if you keep it right. Yeah. That's the way. To, that's the way to do it. So, uh, what what does success look like for you? Is it sharing your calendar, or what, what does it look like over the next sort of three, four, five months, or even years? Um, when I first started, it was all about money. Yeah. Um, and as I've uh, got older and been doing this longer, for me, it's now about personal growth. Um, like I want to, I want to be able to consistently get better and be able to manage bigger and bigger businesses. Mm-hmm. So right now we're doing 20, 20 staff X number of turnover. Mm-hmm. I want to in one year, two years time, be able to do a hundred staff mm-hmm. and I don't know, 50 million turnover. Mm-hmm. And then I think I just want to be able to consistently get better and better that I can manage mm-hmm. a business at each stage of the growth. So what's the turnover now then as a milestone? We're a couple of months away from being about five million. So, Elliot, I mean, in terms of you know the, the listenership or the people that listen to this, this this podcast, obviously they're wanting to either best their career, become an entrepreneur, go into the world of startup. I suppose they're roughly twenty four to thirty six in terms of age. Now, you know, you are banging in that kind of category. What would you say to somebody that's at a similar age as you? I think if I think the running a business in that in that age group is probably the best thing that you can do. We talked about it previously in terms of you don't have kids, you don't have a mortgage, mm-hmm. but also this is the best um, grad scheme that you can go on. <laughs> um, you're you're going to learn so much about yourself, but also about business. Yeah. And even if it's a complete flop, that's not actually the point. It's about that personal growth mm-hmm. during that period, what you've learned about yourself and, and how you can can use those skills if you ever do want to go back to a normal job. And if I was employing someone and they'd, I'd seen that they'd gone and done that, I would be all over them um, rather than someone that had 10, 20 years of corporate experience. So I think anyone that's listening, if you've got an idea and you're thinking about it, just um, go quit your job now and just go for it. <laughs> and I'd love to know if anyone actually is listening and this has kicked them into gear, or indeed anyone that's listened to past episodes and has just gone and done it or changed their outlook, do email us. Um, the email's in the description. Yeah, definitely. And also, if you are thinking of doing it, um, I would be more than happy to offer any free advice about setting up a business as a as a young entrepreneur and, and offer as much insight and support as I could.
Interesting. So in the next couple of years, if you jump back on, you'll be uh, hopefully flying towards that exit of 100 million plus. And uh, in terms of where people can find you right now to be able to essentially help you on that journey by becoming a client, <laughs> how can they find you, Elliot? Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. Um, I've recently set up a, a new Instagram page as well. Um, and I'm more than happy to share my email um, if anyone would like to get in touch or if I can help them at all. And the business addresses? Business address. Oh, office actually. The URL, sorry. That was badly, oh, badly worded. The business website address. <laughs> I don't want people rocking up after no, listening exactly. to the show. Camping outside. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's www.the-symbolbunch.co.uk. Very good. We'll link it. We'll link it in the um, in the description. But Elliot, thank you ever so much for, for jumping all, thank on. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and no, I really enjoyed it, dude. Good luck. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more information, check out the description where you can find exclusive video snippets on my YouTube channel, as well as contact details and links. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support as always by subscribing. If you or someone you know should be on the show, please email me via oliver at pinpoint-media.co.uk and I promise I'll get back to you. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Take care. Success in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers, and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection, and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. This podcast is supported by our media partner, Blocks and PR, who represent some of the most powerful brands within the luxury, lifestyle, and fashion sector. Go and check them out at blocksandpr.com.